So uh, my son Obadiah just turned one years old last week. To give him a whoop whoop. Um, and as part of his birthday party, my uncle got him a big stack of books that he got at Goodwill. One of those was this. Does anyone recognize Aesop's Fables? Yeah, so this is all the classics of, uh, you know, the story of uh, the, the eagle and the tortoise and the story of, of the eagle and the rooster and pride comes before the fall. The, the turtle and the hare, right? Slow and steady wins the race. Now, uh, most of us are pretty familiar with Aesop's fables as kind of cute, animal-based, moralistic stories, right? They end with, here's a fun illustration, here's what it means. Here's some wisdom for living life well. Now, as we get into the parables of Jesus Christ, in some ways, they're similar to Aesop's fables. They have illustrations. They use kind of everyday imagery and context. Uh, but the parables of Jesus are different in, in two primary ways. Uh, first, the fables always give you like a fun illustration. And then they say, and here's the point. Now, earlier in Jesus's ministry, prior to Matthew 13, he used illustrative parables in context, just like Aesop's fables. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, he would say things like, here's all my teaching. Anyone who does this is like the wise person that builds their house on the rock. If you don't do that, it's like building your house on sand, like a foolish person. Or uh, the way that you know a false teacher from a true teacher is you look at the fruit of their life. And then he gives the illustration of, of fruit and trees. So he's giving you a story and explanation. Where Jesus's parables in Matthew 13 are very different is all he gives you is a weird word picture and then he walks away and moves on and he gives you another weird word picture. And he does that intentionally and we're gonna open it up. Now, another thing that makes the parables of Jesus of Nazareth different than Aesop is the gravity with which they describe reality. Uh, the reason that we opened the call to worship out of Matthew 1 that Joey read and Joey explained was because who we think Jesus is entirely shapes how we interpret and receive these parables. If Jesus is only an interesting ancient thinker and teacher, then we receive his parables as just interesting like brain puzzles. And then we kind of stop there. But if we believe that Jesus is actually the son of God named Jesus, Yeshua, God saves, and has been given the title Emmanuel, God with us, that lends a degree of gravity to his stories, no matter how simple they appear on the surface, right? If the son of God is here saying, here's reality, and then he gives you a word picture, it's this invitation to lean in to something that is incredibly important. So here's um, what we're going to do today, kind of our roadmap. We're actually going to follow Jesus's direct line of thought and teaching in scripture. So uh, if you follow this, Jesus opens up by giving a parable, period. And then he kind of moves on and his disciples later come up to him and say, why? That didn't make any sense. So then Jesus explains to him why he teaches in parables. Then he gives them the direct explanation or opening up of that parable. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to read the parable, scratch our noggins a little bit, say why, Look at Jesus' answer for why, and then we're going to look at his explanation of the parable. Now, before we move farther, I just want to say this. Jesus came as more than a cosmic king, though he absolutely, that is probably the greatest way we could describe him. He came as a teacher. He came as a teacher of people. And so as we um, listen to him, uh, we need to understand that he called the people that followed him disciples, apprentices, students, 
And I bring this up so we question, how do I receive this teaching? Again, is it only an interesting moralistic story that I then put away, close my Bible and move on? Or do I humble myself before this person, even while I struggle to understand all the nooks and crannies, and look to live my life in full submission to this person, their teaching, absorbing the way they describe reality, as well as the way this person lives their life? That is my invitation for you. So, as I read uh, this parable, my invitation to you is pretend you haven't heard this before. <laughs> pretend you've never heard this. Uh, if you are new to kind of Christian circles, it might be entirely new and baffling, but if you've heard a sermon or you've read through the parables, do a little bit of disassociation right now, fresh imagination, here we go. Father, as we uh, read your word, would you open it to us, open up our imaginations? Uh, Spirit, would you speak to us the truth inside of this? Uh, would you create hunger and thirst to know uh, your understanding of reality and that we would stand under it um, and shape our life around it. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. The same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him. So he got into a boat and sat down. The whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables saying, quote, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they didn't have much soil. Immediately, those seeds sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil, produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Full stop. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this parable, you're probably feeling exactly the same way his original audience did. What? I don't get it. I mean, I get it. Like, yeah, birds, plants, seeds. I get, I, like, I understand all the words coming out of your mouth, but I don't get it. What's the point? What does this have to do with anything? And this is the exact question his disciples asked him. They, they like his closest followers, who've been following for quite a while at this point, come to him and say, Jesus, we don't get it. They don't get it. Why are you doing this? Do you read with me verse 10? Then the disciples came and they said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's why I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart, their heart has grown dull, and with their ears, they can barely hear, and their eyes, they've closed. Lest they should see with their ears, or excuse me, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. 
But blessed are your eyes, for they see, your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets, many righteous people longed to see what you see, and they didn't see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now again, up until now, Jesus has used parables as illustrations, and their meaning was always self-evident. So there was helpful illustrations that helped you grasp the memory meaning, and so you could take it home with you. But again, these here are more than just helpful moralistic stories. What's really going on here is these parables are essential revelations of God. So they're more than moralistic stories. They're essential revelations of God. And those revelations are being brought in the immediate context by the Messiah himself as he's describing his kingdom. So in order to understand the parable, that understanding has to be based on recognizing Jesus as the Messiah and recognizing that he's talking about the kingdom of God breaking forth in history. Once you understand Jesus is the Messiah, describing the kingdom of God breaking forth, many of the puzzle pieces click into place. But if you reject the stance that he is the Messiah or anything more than just a cute teacher, then we're left in the dark. Now, if this is the direct revelation of God, it requires a response, right? We cannot receive a direct revelation of God and then walk away. And this is the history that this story picks up in the middle of. So if you guys noticed, the very first verse of chapter 13 says this, the same day, dot, dot, dot. So this is picking up in the middle of the story because of kind of the way we've broken up the sermon series. So we're missing out much of the context, much of the story here. But the story that we're picking up on is Jesus has been traveling for quite a while and he's been, there's been a crowd of multitudes kind of following him around. Some really interested, some believing, some unbelieving, but they're all following him around, many of them expecting handouts, miracles, and religious entertainment. So he's chosen. This is very unique. He's telling his disciples, right now, I'm intentionally changing the way I teach. And now I will only use parables free of interpretive context, and then I will interpret them to you, my closest followers, in private. And to explain this, he gives us two reasons and one acknowledgement. So the two reasons he gives right off the front, he says, to those who have, more will be given. To those who don't have, it'll be taken away, right? And so we can very like, simply understand this as Jesus's discerning judgment. So when I say discerning judgment, what I mean is there's a bunch of people following him around, Right? And based on their actions and their questions and their posture, he sees very clearly what their heart is in response to him. And he knows what is in their heart. He knows what they're after. And he tells his disciples point blank, I can tell these people here, but they're not listening. They've no interest in listening genuinely. So he says, I'm going to stop giving to them because their response has already revealed their hearts. Their response has already revealed their hearts are closed and disinterested. So I'm going to stop giving. But to those who are eager and responsive, to those that have interest, I will give more. Because their response is telling me that they have a willingness to receive my words. They have a willingness to cultivate trust and responsiveness. They have a willingness to lean in and pursue. And so Jesus, at this point, is saying, for those who want to question for the sake of of argument and for empty words, those who want to question for the sake of stubbornness, I'm not going to entertain that. But for those who want to question and explore with sincerity, I'm going to give them these like unforgettable hooks 
that capture them. And because they recognize this man is the Messiah, I don't totally understand it, but I want to lean in. I want to understand him and his kingdom. These parables will not be a closed paradox to them. They will lean in, they will pursue, and they will receive more. So that's the first reason he gives. The second reason he gives is he's saying this is fulfilling prophecy. This is fulfilling the expectations of God that those who have closed and hardened their hearts will grow dull and rebellious. Therefore, they will not see, they will not hear, nor will they, or they will see and they will hear, but they will not understand. They will not return and turn back to me, and if they did, I will heal them. Remember, this is not closed-hearted Jesus. This is Jesus, the, the atoning king, come to lay his life down for everyone who would believe in him. So he's not here trying to close the door. He's here with clarity of thought and vision saying, if you will receive, I'm all in. But if you've already shut the door, I'm going to move on. And so he's saying, I'm fulfilling the prophecy that those who have closed their hearts, dulled their eyes, will not turn to me at all. So he gives two reasons and one acknowledgement. This last acknowledgement comes um, and is entirely compelling for me. He says this. He kind of explains, here's why I'm talking in parables. And then he turns to his disciples around the circle and he says this. Blessed are your eyes. Blessed are your ears. Because you hear and see and understand. Do you know how many people have longed, eagerly waited for this revelation of God that I bring to you right now? You are so incredibly privileged. And so Jesus is calling out that they are seeing and hearing and receiving open-heartedly. And he is praising them for it. And then he acknowledges what an incredible privilege this intimate revelation and explanation of the parables is. And where this gets really compelling for me is that they were the primary recipients of explanation, but we, as holders of Scripture, are the secondary recipients. Like, we actually have the direct words of Jesus on the page saying, here's what this means. Will you lean in? Will you lean in or will we go interesting and then move on like the crowds around him? And again, the direct revelation of God requires a response. So if we have this entirely comprehensive revelation of God with the exact interpretive explanation of Jesus himself, it requires that we decide something. Am I going to open myself to it or shrug it off and move on? The kingdom of heaven is being given to us. How will we receive it? We see in verse 15 in the prophecy of Isaiah this clear like eagerness for Jesus for what his people will do in response. He says this in verse 15. This people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they've closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts. And in doing so, turn and I would heal them. So we see for Jesus, like the, the clinch pin here is hearing, seeing, and understanding, right? His big point is they hear, but they don't hear. They see, but they don't see. No one understands. So he's inviting us to understand. And Dale Bruner, one of the commentators I researched out of, says this, and it's really helpful. He talks about understanding as this subtext in the majority of the teachings of Matthew. He says, understanding is an important word in Matthew's vocabulary. You'll see it if you kind of open your eyes. You'll see it all over the place. It's an important word in his vocabulary, and it means this, making a message one's own. 
It means loyalty to the message of the historical Jesus. It means standing under Jesus' teaching in obedience. Now, for me, that simple word flop makes a huge difference. If we're wondering, what does it mean to understand the teachings of Jesus and respond open-heartedly? Stand under them. Come underneath the teaching of Jesus. Be willing to root yourself underneath his teaching and his kingship and his love and his grace. Because as soon as we receive his teaching and we sidestep it and move on, we prove, we evidence that we have no understanding at all. But... When we receive it and we come underneath and hold ourselves under the goodness of his teaching, that's revealing that we understand his role, his invitation, the gift of his grace, his request that we do become obedient and transformed. So as we continue the rest of the parable of the sower, hold that in mind. Will you stand under? And the the rest of the four soils that um, Matthew or that Jesus records Matthew talking about is he's describing people that do, that kind of dove do, and definitely do not stand under the teaching of Jesus. So let's open up the parable uh, as Jesus explains it. In verse 18, he says this, hear, notice the invitation to hear. Hear, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, does not stand under it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, stands under it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold or a hundred times, in another 60, in another 30. Now, there's a couple moving parts, and I feel like Jesus, he lays it out, right? This is an incredibly clear teaching. So the question now is like, how willing am I to engage? Again, who is this teacher? If I hear the words and go, okay, great, cute story, moving on, it's very clear that I have no willingness to stand under this teaching. But if I receive even just like those words alone, though I'm going to explain and extrapolate a little bit, like those words alone should be enough for us to stand under them, to wrestle with them, to take the teaching, to mold our lives and our hearts differently. So there's five moving parts here. Uh, You'll see right in verse 18, or verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom. So first moving part, word of the kingdom. This is the seed. The seed is the word of the kingdom. And then there's four soils. There's the the hard path that the, the birds come. The second one is the shallow, rocky soil. The third one is the weeds or the thorns. And the fourth one is the good. So let's spend a couple quick moments just opening those up. First, what is the word of the kingdom? What is the seed? There's a sower going out, throwing seed. What is that seed? What is the word? 
Now, we could like import a lot of biblical subtext into this, but if we just take it at pure face value and we remember the, the start of the story in Matthew, Jesus' first public words were, repent, turn to God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The immediate text, the immediate train of thinking in Matthew is that. Repent, turn and trust to God. His kingdom is here. And then right after that, he begins the Sermon on the Mount where he says, here are the people who are blessed. So those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is who the kingdom of God is here for. Blessed are the, the, the peacemakers, the blessed are the pure in heart. And then Jesus immediately continues, and he's calling people to faithfulness, and he describes salt and light, and he talks about the ethics of his kingdom. He talks about divorce and sexuality and prayer and fasting, and so this is the direct message. Jesus is saying, here's my kingdom. Come to it, right? Repent, turn, come. The kingdom's here. Here's what it's like. So that is like the direct, immediate context of the word. It's invitation, it's explanation and, and, and boundary and clarity of what, the, what a person in the kingdom lives like, what it looks like when someone in trust and faith is living obediently to God. And if we were to kind of add some more of what we'll get into in Matthew later, if we were going to add more teaching, the gospel of Jesus, the word of the kingdom is the message of reconciliation and adoption. When we take communion here in a little bit, the final words of the kingdom from Jesus is, this is my blood shed as a ransom for the sins of many. This is here, I'm, I'm giving my blood to wash the sins of many. This is the words of the kingdom, is repent, the kingdom's here. Here's what it's like to live in that kingdom. Here's my blood given in love for you. Would you be reconciled to God? And if we stand under that teaching, if we hear that teaching, there's a couple different ways that strikes the human heart. And this is Jesus' Jesus's opening of the soils. First, he describes the soil of the hard path and the birds. Now, I won't repeat every single one here. I'm just going to add some commentary. Notice this. The seed lands on hard path, and then the birds come and eat it. Now, there is the reality of some sort of evil supernatural intervention, right? Coming and stealing the word of God out of someone's heart. But notice this. According to the story of Jesus, the devil does play a predatory role, but there is an individual choice that precedes that predatory intervention. The seed fell on hard soil. There was nowhere for it to go. The soil would not open to receive the grain. And because it's sitting Rejected on the surface, the devil comes and snatches it away. The individual choice is first, no penetration. This is a person with an intentionally closed heart. And Jesus is giving this to, um, to reveal someone who is intentionally rejecting, someone who's already made the choice to reject. And if you might first be like, well, no one would actually do that to the good news. Um, there's a pretty well-known Christian apologist uh, named Frank Turek, if you guys have heard of him. Some of what he does is he'll go and have kind of candid interviews with people, and one of the questions he often asks is, if Christianity were true, and you knew it to be true, would you believe it? If it were true, you knew it was true, would you believe it? And a good number of the people he talks to say no. 
Now, people are, are complicated, but there is a heart posture that says, I don't care what you do or say, I'm uninterested. Jesus has been interacting with these people in the crowds, and he's simply calling it as it is. And then he moves on to the second soil. And as the remaining three soils, notice this, all three of the remaining three soils receive the word of God. They receive the word of the kingdom. And yet, if we listen to the the explanation of these, Jesus is here going to describe what many of us already feel. We feel this tension of, there are very many unchristian Christians in the world. This is Jesus's explanation. Here, quick commentary by Bruner one more time before we continue. He says this, Matthew's Jesus is aware that probably the major scandal in Christianity, not least for Christians themselves individually, is that comparatively few of us live as such. The scandal of the unchristian Christian can be overcome because we now know that this scandal is not proof against Jesus. He predicted it. This leads us to the second soil, described as shallow and rocky. Now, what this soil does for us is it confirms what's pretty obvious to us in common sense. What it confirms is that faith, genuine faith, is not about a conversion experience. And this is actually really good news. We'll get to that later. Faith is not about a big conversion experience. It is not about what it is about. It's about lifelong receptivity, open-heartedness, to the growing of the kingdom in our lives. So what this teaching does, this soil does, is it provides this healthy caution for you and I around emotionalism or experientialism. Emotionalism and experientialism within the church is when we pursue spiritual highs as sustenance for our soul. The evidence of our spiritual life is the spiritual experiences that we get. It's, it's the warm tinglies that we get. It, and And what I'm not saying here is that the church should be cold and sober and and just like real stern. That's what faith is like. Not at all. Real faith is exuberant and joyful. Real faith has space for grief and sorrow and lament. All of those things need to be held in, in both an individual's faith as well as a faith community. But there is such a thing, and, and some Christians call call it storm chasing. Christians individually or, or kind of a, a small pocket of Christians that just chase spiritual storms. I'm always looking for the next individual high. And, and so are we called to be hot and fiery for the kingdom? Absolutely. But am I chasing the genuine person of Jesus opened up in my life? Or am I just looking for a good spiritual experience? Am I worshiping an experience rather than the king? One more comment by Bruner. He says this, The enthusiastic convert finds that keeping the commands of Jesus is not as much fun as accepting the benefits of Jesus and Christian fellowship. The test of true faith is loyalty to Jesus in tough times. And doesn't common sense validate this? Common sense tells us when the rubber meets the road, it tells you if it's sincere or not. So it's no surprise then that shallow faith will pass, whether it's from heat and persecution or simply from boredom. But shallow faith will always result in religious frustration. And this here is not condemnation. This is invitation. Jesus here is inviting his people to depth, 
He's inviting all of his listeners to let roots go deep into our hearts. And I would add, he's inviting the roots of the kingdom to go deep into the earthy, ordinary stuff of your life. Jesus is very sober-minded that the majority of genuine faith does not occur in the flashy and the big and the high. Much of a genuine faith walk occurs in the earthy substrate of our lives. And Jesus is inviting us to open those places to the seed and the good news of his kingdom, to let those places be full of wisdom and depth and spiritual awareness. The third soil that Jesus gets into, the soil that has weeds and thorns. Jesus describes this person interestingly as someone that receives the word of the kingdom and that word of the kingdom even grows in their life. But he says at the end of the day, they experience no fruitfulness. The word of the kingdom's nutrition is choked out in competition. Now, Jesus here describes kind of two big things that we, it's like helpful to understand. What are the things that choke out the fruitfulness of the kingdom in our lives? He gives us the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, another way of translating those that I think is really, really helpful is the anxiety of the age and the delusion of wealth. The anxiety of the age and the delusion of wealth. The anxiety of the age is simply when we absorb and live in the fears of the world. Now, Christians are 100% meant to care for the world. We're meant to be invested. We're meant to be in the world, but not of the world, right? So this is that nuance Jesus is getting into. How do you be invested in the world How do you be invested in remedying the cares and the anxieties of the world without letting them own you as a follower of Jesus? Now, an old Christian saying that is kind of helpful here is if you have a Christians are meant to have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, right? We're meant to be informed and rooted in the scripture of God while also being aware and invested in the happenings of the world so we can bring good news and care and healing, right? But, um, a helpful like addition or nuance to that illustration is if we hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper on equal footing, very quickly we're going to lose sight of what is the most true, right? And I think the re- reality is most of us, are, we're probably not even like 50% Bible, 50% newspaper. We're probably like, Bible's down here, try to fit it in, and most of the stuff is the podcasts and the radio shows and the newspaper and the social media, Right? <laughs> Most of us were this, which is why we experience the anxiety of the age as being more dominant in our lives. So this is like a very practical invitation. If you hear this, like, like, and, and the, like more than philosophically, like very practically, like change the minutes of the day and the rest will follow. So the second thing is delusion of wealth. And I like this language of delusion because it warns us about absorbing and living in the promises of the world. So the first caution is do not absorb the fears and the anxiousness of the world. Now we're being warned to not absorb the promises of the world. Because the promises of the world say your success is your salvation. Your wealth is your security. And isn't that just simply true? Many of us, when we are in hardship, if I can just get a little bit more, if I just work a little bit harder, then I will have what I need. Then I will be bulletproof. And Jesus here is not against ambition at all. He's against serving selfish ambition. 
Earlier in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus describes that you cannot serve two masters. I love here sober-minded, clear-thinking Jesus just calling it as it is. You can't serve two masters. In his words in Matthew 6, you cannot serve both God and money. Can you have money? Great. Can you use money? Great. Can you make money? Great. You can't serve it. This caution here is a a caution against being double-hearted versus being single-hearted. I use that language a lot because it's so helpful for me. What Jesus is warning in this uh, third soil is if you live double-hearted, you might receive the word of the kingdom, but it will be fruitless. And importantly for me at this point, lest we receive Jesus as just this like curmudgeon and stodgy person, Jesus, like two paragraphs, is going to go on to describe the kingdom as a treasure of immense value that it's worth changing your whole life for. He describes the kingdom as a pearl of great value. The kingdom of heaven is not boring. It is not stodgy. It's not gray. It's not just like put away your fun, hold on to your faith until you die. Jesus is describing reality. He's saying, don't get caught by the foolishness of the world. Go to real abundant living. This is what it is. Life in the kingdom of heaven, reception of the kingdom of heaven, which brings us to the fourth soil. What I, I love the simplicity of this. The simplicity, he just calls it the good soil. That's all that it is. It is good soil. It's the most brief, it's the most straightforward of all the explanations. And to me, I think it, that means this. Being a fruitful Christian is just not that complicated. Being a fruitful Christian is not complicated. And I do not say that to say, so figure it out already, right? I walk the shoes of a real human being. I know the ups and downs and the apathy and the coldness and the the desire for more of God's presence, all living in one human heart. But in its most simple terms, good soil is simply being open-hearted in our reception of the word of the kingdom. And remember, this invitation goes to all the broken and the messy and every single unworthy person on the planet because Jesus is here to save We're being called to be open-hearted to the grace of the kingdom. We're being called to be open-hearted to a new life, a new way of living, a new lifestyle. We're being called to receive, respond, and obey. And if it's helpful for you as a Christian already to think of it this way, I've received the gospel. Where do I need to continue to receive the gospel? Where are the different pockets of soil in my heart hard or full of rocks, right? If you imagine yourself as a field, where are the different pockets of weeds or rocks and how do I open all of who I am to regular reception? And when I use the word regular, I mean it in two ways and I hope this is helpful. Regular reception, meaning regularity of frequency, I regularly open myself to the good news, open-hearted, and as well as the ordinariness of it. I receive the gospel in the ordinary stuff. Not only the big and flashy, but the every day I wake up receptive to the kingdom of God in my life. One more way I want to like approach um, this is like the, the cleverness and the, the, the captivating language that Jesus chooses to use here. He describes those who receive his, the word of the kingdom as being fruitful, right? as being abundant in the fruit that they bear. 
And you guys all probably know, um, right, when you're walking through kind of a dry, dusty field, it's a hot summer day, you know that dry feeling where the heat is just bearing down. But you also know the cool of a garden. When you walk into a place where there's some some tree coverage and the, the, the plants are abundant and watered, and you know the feeling when you walk and just your knees have the chill of the air and the wind kind of comes through the lilac bushes and you smell the garden and its beauty, this is the imagery that Jesus chooses to use as the beauty of the kingdom of God. Not the dryness of an empty struggling field, but the cool like abundance and flourishing of a garden. This is what it feels like when people live and enjoy the kingdom of God. And he chooses to use the language of crazy multiplication here. That a tiny little seed can produce at least, bare minimum, 30 times. Up to 60 and 100. And we could get weird about measuring each other and, oh, I'm an 85 times person and you're a 60, right? Like, that's weird. But the good news here is the exponential growth. If you feel as though you do not bring much to the table... This promise of Jesus is if you simply open your heart to reception of the word of the kingdom, it will bear fruit. Bare minimum, 30 times what you could expect. 60, 100 times. And one thing I appreciate before closing on this last soil is Matthew Henry, one of the commentators I read, acknowledges this. He he kind of acknowledges that even good soil probably has rocks and weeds. But he says this. Saints in this world are not perfectly free from the remains of sin, but they are happily freed from the reign of it. And if you think about that, simply being open-hearted, doesn't mean that sin doesn't exist, rocks and weeds don't exist. What it means is the soil is open and I let the farmer take stuff out. The soil of my heart is open. It does not reign over me. Now, one question I have is, like, is Jesus talking about salvation here? Is Jesus saying that only the fruitful are actually saved and everyone else can think they're saved but not actually be in the kingdom? Now, I, I do, like, my first knee-jerk is I want to debate Jesus. And I want to kind of debate, well, well how much fruit is fruitful and, and what kind of soil and, and would you really throw them out? And I, I want to start arguing with them. But even if this passage does describe salvation, even if it does, my conclusion is that this is still far less complex than we make it. All that he's saying is that a genuine heart that responds to the grace of Jesus will result in lifelong faithfulness and fruitfulness. He's not applying what I would call a legalistic and religious metric. All he is saying is an open heart, an open heart will receive his teaching, even when it's challenging. An open heart will stay loyal to him over a lifetime. And a loyal heart or an open heart will stand under his teaching in obedience. An open heart will rest in his grace through the whole process. Is it salvific? I'm not sure. But it is, in my eyes, a simple recipe of sincerity that matches the rest of Scripture. If you consider James, faith without works is dead. 
Jesus' invitation is to be fruitful soil. Now, there's a couple things that are easy to miss here, and this is where I'll end. If we get really self-critical at this point, well, I'm, I'm the bad soil, and like, ugh. If we get really self-critical, or we get argumentative, and we start talking back to Jesus of who's what, we're going to miss out on the whole point. I think it's easy to miss these couple things. First, Jesus is not asking you to condemn yourself. He is not asking, I skipped a point actually, I'll go back. Jesus is not here giving you this as a tool to condemn others. It would be entirely calamitous if an entire group of Christ followers took this up as a sword and went out in the world and said, you're bad soil and you're bad soil and you're weeds. That would just be like devastating, right? Like who wants to do that? And yet much of what we do is we want to kind of leverage this externally. It's not the point that Jesus is giving you here. He's not asking you to use this externally. He is using, asking us to use it internally, but my second point, he's not giving you this as a tool to condemn yourself. If this is used for condemnation, it will very quickly lead us to despair. I'm just bad soil. The devil took it away. I'm, I'll never get over the cares and the anxiety of the world. I'm just lost. And that despair will, at the end of the day, lead us to resent the person of Jesus. Because why would you give me the message if you could never save me from it in the first place? This is not about condemning others. It is not condemning ourselves. This is Jesus, what I would call sober invitation to see reality clearly. His invitation is to not be a bad soil. He doesn't want us to miss the good news of his kingdom for any reason, so he points out all the things. He points out the hard hearts. He points out the shallowness that will not hold root. He points out the cares and the things that pull us away. And he's saying, but my desire is that the seed of the kingdom would be received with good soil. He's guarding us against the things that would stunt and foil the fruitfulness of his kingdom in our lives. And he's urging us to till the soil. This is an invitation not to be fixed, not to be stuck, not to be like um, despairing in our condemnation, but move towards life. And his invitation here, I love, it's just full of open-heartedness. He's asking us to be open-hearted to his love, his grace, and his corrective teaching. He's inviting his followers as well as us to feel reality. Because much of what we do is we feel, right? If, If you're identifying as a certain soil type right now, we, we kind of don't want to feel that. And so we just like, well, I'm definitely not that soil. I'm good soil. And here's all the things I'm going to do to prove that I'm good soil. Jesus is not asking us to numb ourselves to reality, to, to um, like bear the burden of empty religious proving. He's not saying turn your heart off and pretend you're good soil. He's saying open yourself to my teaching. Open myself to the reality of where you're at and open open into good soil. And so three very simple things to each of those three unhealthy soils. If you are the closed hard path, simply choose to be open-hearted rather than closed. If you feel as though you are a person of shallowness, my invitation or Jesus' invitation would be to foster depth, create space to think, create room to be deep, to be loyal, to be rooted. So when hardship or boredom comes, go deeper. Let that break up the rocks to go deeper. If you are 
Notice the weeds and the thorns, the cares and the delusions of the world. Remove distractions and choose to be single-hearted. Experience the joy of simpleness of life in the kingdom. This is the very last couple things I want to say. Because at this point, I could close on the sermon and we'd all walk away thinking about how much better we have to do in life, right? Oh man, I really got to till my soil better. I really got to do the newspaper thing. I really got to do better. If we walk out and I end here, I believe we miss out on the entire good news that Jesus has for us. I think everything I've said to this point, Jesus wants us to hear. He does want us to hear this. This is him telling people, he's looking people in the face and saying, some of you are hard soil. He wants us to hear that. But if we focus only on the four soils, we miss out on all the subtext. Here is some of the subtext in the parable. The soil is only the medium. The soil is only the dirt. Everything else is provided by the goodness of God. Notice the emphasis of the seed. The seed, the the good news of the kingdom being opened, delivered by King Jesus here to save people. Notice the water and the sunshine and the nutrition, all of which is provided by God and his goodness. Notice the emphasis of the sower at this point. The sower who chooses to go into the field to scatter the seed. This isn't an apathetic farmer who's just letting the field go fallow. He's going out saying, I want to bring fruitfulness into the world. So I will spread my seed even to all the far corners, all the rocky paths, all the shallow soil, all the weedy soil, all the good soil. I will spread it because I am generous of heart. And notice the generosity of both the spreading as well as the message. He spreads it to all the soils and the message itself is free. The message of the redemption of Jesus is entirely free. He came, Jesus came to bear the cost of sin so that the cost of entering the kingdom would be like we walked up and it's already stamped paid from the love and the generosity of God. And then lastly, notice this. Notice the emphasis on the growing power of the word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom, as you'll hear in a little bit, is a tiny seed that turns into an impressive tree. Notice that it, 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 the, the image he chooses to attach is roots that like break the soil, roots that go deep. Have you guys ever seen a tree that just like demolishes all the concrete around it? That's the image that Jesus chooses to use. He says, my word will go into the world and it will bring life. My world will create flourishing. My word will create fruitfulness. My word will yield to some 100, some 60, some 30, but it will yield. There's no doubt in Jesus's mind that the seed of the kingdom will be fruitful and it will bring life and it will bring fruitfulness. And so he gives this parable as stern invitation and warning, but it's more than any of that. It's, it's this proclamation of the generosity of God and the guarantee that his seed will create fruitfulness in the world as a whole, as well as our lives individually when we choose to open the soil. Choose to be open-hearted. And for me, those couple things, the emphasis on the seed, the sower, his generosity, and his fruitfulness, they just cinch the knot of my investment in this. They frame this whole thing not only as a message of self-improvement for a grumpy God. Be a good soil or God will be mad. 
They reframe all of this into the image of a God who is loving and pursuing, a God who is scattering and planting the message of his kingdom with full generosity, with expecting an, a, like an incredible bounty. So we, I hope, like receive Jesus' word as good news and we receive it with simple, regular, and single-hearted openness. Would you pray with me? Father, I think back at the word of your kingdom and how you've radically transformed the fruitfulness of my life. Um, Lord, would you call us out with healthy reality that we would see and feel and be willing to let discomfort move us towards the better? Would you create vision in our life for your goodness, your gospel, your love for us? Um, We thank you that you scatter seeds of this good kingdom. Amen.